All right. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at his rutted uh, faced boy. I'm a dog. Am I a dog? He roared at David, that you come at me with sticks. And he cursed David by the names of his God. Come over here and I'll give you flesh. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistines, You come to me with swords and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the heaven's armies and God of the army of Israel, whom you have defiled. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give you the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here and will know that the Lord will rescue his people. But now with the sword and spear, this, the Lord, this is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved, moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his uh, shepherd's bag, taking out the stone, and her, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled to the, and fell down to the ground. Well, when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, uh, there was a spate of films that were made that all had the same essential plot line. In 1995, The Big Green was released, which tells the story of an exchange teacher from England who brings soccer to a bunch of hopeless misfit students in a failing Texas school. This movie has all the tropes, the attractive teacher, the sheriff who becomes the assistant coach largely due to his attraction to the teacher, Juan, a new student to the class who happens to be amazing at soccer, and the team miraculously ends up in the championship game facing the Knights, and the game comes down to a shootout with the Big Green's smallest player scoring the shot to elevate the Misfits to victory. And just a year earlier, in 1994, Little Giants was released. Rick Moranis steps out of his role with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids to play the role of Danny O'Shea. Danny O'Shea's brother, Kevin O'Shea, is a Heisman Trophy winner, and, the coaches, and he coaches the Pee Wee Juggernaut Cowboys. Frustrated with the Cowboys' elitism, Danny O'Shea forms his own peewee football team, the Giants. The Giants, as expected, are unathletic misfits. And miraculously, the Giants become good enough to face the Cowboys in the championship game. The Giants win the game on a trick play that produces a 99-yard touchdown. My favorite movie of the bunch, however, and Brian Holtz will certainly appreciate this, was The Mighty Ducks. Released in 1992, this film follows Gordon Bombay, a big-shot attorney who coaches a peewee hockey team as a form of community service for a DUI. Bombay's team, the Ducks, are, unsurprisingly, a ragtag bunch of unathletic outcasts. Nonetheless, Bombay, a former peewee hockey star himself, coaches the team to the finals against the Hawks. The Hawks are an elite juggernaut that Bombay played for himself when he was a player. And the movie inserts ominous swooping sound effects while the Hawks glide over the ice to emphasize their dominance. The game comes down to a penalty shot and Charlie from the Ducks performs the triple deke move to score the goal and win the game. And as you can see by now, the filmmakers of the 90s took the same movie, they changed the characters, the sport, and the names of the teams to create a new movie. And in some cases, the actors were even the same, but each movie is the same essential plot. Ragtag bunch of misfits take on an elite juggernaut and miraculously defeat the elite juggernaut. 
all three of these movies have the same David versus Goliath plot. And David versus Goliath story is so ubiquitous and so well known in our culture that just referencing it, most people know on cue that you're referencing a little guy taking on a big guy and an unlikely victory from a little guy, ill-equipped, unlikely to win, taking on a big guy and bringing down a giant. Most of our culture knows the story of David versus Goliath. But today, I want to move beyond the little guy versus the big guy trope, if you will, and I want to look at three contrasts between David and Goliath. Let's look at three contrasts that we get between these two individuals. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verses 4 to 7. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Now the camera's going to pan down. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. And so it's almost as if the biblical authors train our camera on Goliath as he walks out into the battlefield, and they bring the camera, they pan the camera down his body so that we can take note of every piece of armament that Goliath carries with him. It reminds me of this scene in the movie Despicable Me when the character Gru is trying to get into the fortress of another supervillain by the name of Vector. And Vector's fortress is all decked out with armaments until finally Vector just kind of lets loose all the, all the weapons he's got on, on Gru. And this is kind of how I feel like it is with Goliath when we first see him walk out onto the battlefield. He's got all the armaments. He has all the weapons. And so Goliath comes to the battlefield with faith in weapons, with faith in his abilities, with faith in his size, in his dominance, in his weapons. But now look at what David says as he comes out onto the battlefield. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And so Goliath comes with sword, spear, and javelin, but David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And so David comes to the battlefield with faith in God. Goliath comes with faith in weapons. David comes with faith in God. And David even earlier repudiated armaments and weapons because Saul offered up his armaments to David, and David turned them down. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 38 to 39. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, st strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. And so Saul comes to the battle with faith in weapons. David comes to the battle with faith in God. And that prompts the question for us. When we have a battle to fight, when we face battles in our lives, where do we place our faith? Do we place our faith in strategies and patterns of acting and our experience and ways of dealing with these battles before? Or do we place our faith in the Lord? Where do we place our faith when we face battles in our lives? Do we place our faith in the weapons and the tools that are available to us? Or do we place our faith in the Lord? Now, here's what's interesting, though. David still used a weapon, all right? David still used a weapon. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. David picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. And so David did use weapons. He used what he knew. He used 
his sling that he used as a shepherd and five smooth stones as the ammo. And so David used weapons, but his faith was not in weapons. His faith was in the Lord. And similarly, we use weapons. When we face battles in our lives, we do use weapons. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 11. It says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And so the Bible does instruct us to use the armaments that are available to us, the armor of God, namely some of the things that the Bible names for us are the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. I mean, even Ephesians six seventeen instructs us to pick up the sword of the spirit. Look what it says, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we do use weapons. The Bible is a weapon, and we're instructed to use God's word, to use the sword of the spirit. However, we don't place our faith in the Bible. We place our faith in the one to whom the Bible points. We place our faith in God. God has granted us this weapon. We are supposed to use it, but we don't place our faith in the weapon. We place our faith in the one whom we find within the weapon. We place our faith in Jesus. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verses 41 to 44. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the name of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. And so Goliath is offended that Israel would trot out, in Goliath's mind, an unworthy opponent. That Israel would trot out this ruddy-faced boy, as Goliath says. And that Israel would trot out this tiny shepherd boy. Goliath's offended because Goliath comes defending his own honor. He comes with all the hutzpah, I can't say that <laughs> word, right? All the, all the puffed-up conceitedness that he has defending his own name, and he's offended that Israel dare trot out this ruddy-faced boy. Contrast Goliath with David, who says this in 1745, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then 46, the Lord will conquer you. And then 46 again, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And so Goliath comes defending his own name, his own honor, whereas David comes to honor the Lord. David comes in the name of the Lord. It's not David's honor on the line. It's God's honor on the line, which gives us the question, do we honor the Lord with our battles? David saw the battle as belonging to the Lord. David wanted to honor the Lord when he walked out on that battlefield. And so when we face battles, do we honor the Lord with our battle? Or is it just something we kind of got to win and move on? You know, I know for me, when I face battles, it's really easy to get wrapped up in like, when's this going to be done? Or how can I just sort of win this battle and then move on to, see, to fight another day? You know, and it's like, no, Bill, like, you can honor the Lord here. This is an opportunity to bring God glory and honor and to sh show the world what the Lord is capable of and to show the Lord or show the world what God has done in your life. Just last week I was uh, in my role with our presbytery. I was at First Presbyterian because they got a new associate pastor. And so I preached there and then I, in my role, installed. Uh, her name is Michelle Gross as the new associate pastor at First Presbyterian because presbyteries install pastors. That's how it works in, in, in ECO. And a friend of mine at that church, and I, I can name him, he'd be okay with this. His name is da David Clarabout. Um, he came up to me and he, sh and he, he, he showed me uh, his 10-year sober coin from, from uh, AA. 
And, and he's like, to God be the glory. He said, the only reason why I have this is because of the Lord. And he uses his former alcoholism as a way of showing the world, look what God did in my life. Like, I couldn't have gotten out of this on my own. I had to appeal to the Lord, and the Lord is the one who brought me out of this. And it's this incredible redemption story that God has written in his life. And, and I'm so glad that he's be willing to be used of the Lord to show people, like, God can do this. He can bring you out of alcoholism. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 9. Goliath proposes this. He says, if, if your champion kills me, then we, the Philistines, will be your slaves. But if I, Goliath, kill your champion, then you, Israel, will be our slaves. All right. So Goliath comes onto the battlefield ready to enslave. He wants slaves. He wants more people to dominate over. And look what David says in verse 37 and then 47. In 37 he says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And then 47, And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And so whereas Goliath comes to the battlefield ready to enslave, David comes to the battlefield representing the Lord who rescues. David comes to the battlefield representing a God who liberates, a God who breaks free, a God who breaks out of slavery. And so we got three contrasts between David and Goliath. Goliath comes with faith in weapons. David comes with faith in God. Goliath comes defending his own honor. David comes to honor the Lord. Goliath comes to enslave, but David comes representing the Lord who rescues. So we just flew through three contrasts. So what, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? We got this contrasting figure, David and Goliath. So how do we apply this to our life? What does the story, David versus Goliath, mean for us? Well, I want to give you another contrast. And I want to contrast a popular way of interpreting this story with the proper way of interpreting this story, right? So here's a popular way of interpreting the David versus Goliath story. Oftentimes, when we read the David versus Goliath story, we see Goliath as representing the battles and the challenges in our lives. He is a metaphor for the difficulties, the frustrations, the, the, uh, you know, the challenges that we'll have to overcome. And then we see David as ourselves, and the interpretation is, with the Lord's help, we, as David, fight the battles in our lives. With God's help, we fight the battles in our lives. That's often how we interpret this story. And interpretations like this are everywhere. You can find them all over the Internet. Here's, a, here's a, an article that I found entitled, Five Stones for Defeating Giants in Your Life. You're David. With God's help, you take on the giants in your life. Here's another article from the Christian Post, Four Steps to Defeating the Giants in Our Lives. How do we defeat the giants in our lives? Here's a quote from a sermon on David versus Goliath from a popular preacher. He says, we're going to keep our distance from our enemy and sling our stones until every Goliath falls down in our lives. Again, we're David fighting Goliath in our lives. Here's another quote from another sermon about David versus Goliath. You're going to defeat that giant. Yes, that obstacle is big, but you have greatness in you. So again, we're fighting Goliath in our lives. Here's a sermon summary from a sermon entitled Attack and Advantage Facing Goliath. All right? Even that sermon title, Facing Goliath, kind of hints at this interpretation of we're David, we fight Goliath. Look what this sermon summary says. It says, we all face giants in our lives. Don't be caught off guard. You have a God-given advantage. The Jewish soldiers, yes, I practiced that one. That's hard to say. Said of Goliath, 
he's too big to kill. David, full of faith, said, he's too big to miss. So again, the interpretation is, you are David, and with God's help, you take on Goliath, and you fight the battles in your life. However, in an interpretation like that, who's the hero? You are. Because you're the one taking on Goliath. And you're the one defeating Goliath. And you're the one battling Goliath. And God, even though we're appealing to him for help, is kind of pushed to the margins as sort of this sideline character that just sort of cheers you on as you fight the battle. You go, Bill Vervaldi, yeah, take on that giant. And we kind of push God out to this passive sideline character. And the problem is, is that ultimately you get the glory in that story because you're the one who takes on the giant. And you're the one who's slinging the stones until the giant falls. And when we read our Bibles, a rule we need to have is we don't get the glory. God gets the glory. So here's a little interpretive tip for you as you're reading your Bibles and trying to make sense of it, okay? If you're the hero, you've got to scrap the interpretation. Right? We're not the hero of the Bible. God is the hero of the Bible. So any time that God becomes a sideline character and you become a central character, you got to scrap your interpretation and you got to rethink and say, there's got to be a better way to understand this and read this because God gets the glory, not me. And so you're not David. That's the title of today's sermon. You're not David. Jesus is David. Jesus is David. When we read the David versus Goliath story, Goliath is life's battles, true, but we're not David. Jesus is David, who takes on life's battles. And even the Bible itself makes it clear that we ought to read David as Jesus. Look at what 1 Samuel 17, 12 says. It says, David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. So we got this, David is an Ephrathite from the town of Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem. Well, then we go to Micah 5, 2, which is a prophecy that we often read at Christmas time, and look what the prophecy says about the Messiah, about the Christ, the anointed one. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And we know that that prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was born on Christmas in Bethlehem, the long-awaited Ephrathite, in the line of David, in the direct ancestral line of David, and he now is the one who will rule forever on David's throne. So even the Bible itself makes it clear that we're to see Jesus as David because he is the Messiah. He is the one to whom David points. Now look at 1 Samuel 1737, and we're going to see that even David himself, not only are we supposed to read David as Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled all the prophecy, but even David himself, when he was fighting the battle, saw the battle as belonging to the Lord's and not to himself. Look at 1 Samuel 1737. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So the Lord is going to rescue me. Here's 45. You come with me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you 
in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I come to you on God's orders. I'm here because of the Lord. And this is the most clear of all. David just says in 46, today the Lord will conquer you. Not I will conquer you. The Lord will conquer you. This is the Lord's battle. Goliath, you better watch out because you're not fighting me. You're fighting Yahweh. You're fighting the Lord. So you're not David. Jesus is David. When we read the David and Goliath story, you're not David. Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who fights our battles. So how does this play out practically for us? Okay, so I've given you an interpretation. And when we read the David and Goliath story, we're supposed to see David as Jesus and David fighting the battles in our lives. Jesus fights the battles in our lives. So how does this work or how does this play out for us? Well, number one, we're at war, right? And we're not just at war against the physical world. I'm sorry, you're going to get sick of this verse. I'm not sorry, actually. I just mean you're going to get sick of Ephesians 6.12 because I'm coming back to it constantly. And I just kind of feel like I keep coming back to this verse because it's been more true in my life than ever before. It's kind of like the principalities and powers in the unseen realm have been largely unseen through my life, but now in the past two years or so, they've become really visible, which is why I keep coming to Ephesians 6.12. We're at war, folks. We're not at war with the physical world. We're at war with the spiritual world. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And so not only are the battles in our lives physical battles, but they have some sort of spiritual, unseen realm backing and animation to them. Right? There is an enemy, and there are demons, and Satan is real. And somehow, in some way that's unseen and unfully known to us, he is behind the battles that we face in our lives. So we are at war. So what do we do? What do we do? We're at war. Jesus is David fighting the battles in our lives, but we still face these battles. So when we face these battles, what do we do? And we do what David did. And we do what David did over and over and over again. Look at how David fights. Look at what David says in Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, I am calling to you. Please hurry. Listen when I cry to you for help. Help, God. I'm crying to you. Look at Psalm 86. This is David again. We'll read 1 through 3 and 6 to 7. David says, Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I am devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Listen closely to my prayer, O Lord. Hear my urgent cry. I will call to you whenever I'm in trouble, and you will answer me. How does David fight? He calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon the victor. He calls upon the one who fights on his behalf. And this is common in David's life. We see this over and over again because David's battle over Goliath would kick off 
a storm of jealousy from King Saul, who would eventually pursue David, trying to kill David. And so David had to run away from Saul, and he was on the run for quite some time, running away, trying to preserve his life because Saul wanted to kill him. And then he becomes king, but then even at the end of his life, when he's still king, one of his sons, Absalom, rebels against him. And so now David is on the run again, trying to preserve his life, only this time it's one of his own sons that's after him because his son wants the throne. And what does he do? Look at Psalm 3. There's a note from Psalm 3, and it tells us the context of Psalm 3. It says, a psalm of David regarding the time David fled from his son Absalom. So he wrote this while he was on the run from his own son trying to stay alive. And what does David do? Let's read the psalm. O Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surrounded me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Rescue me, God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. What does David do when he's on the run from Absalom? How does he fight? He calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon the name of the victor. He calls upon the name of the one who can slap his enemies in the face, who can break the teeth of the wicked, who can rescue him. That's how he fights. He calls upon the name of the Lord. There's a, a band that I like. Their name is Upper Room, and, and they wrote this song called <coughs> Surrounded, which is the subtitle is Fight My Battles. And I want you to listen to what the lead singer who wrote this song, I want you to listen to what she says, uh, kind of, you know, as she just kind of spontaneously says something as she's singing this song. Let's, let's hear what she says. Jesus, calling on your name is how I fight. That's how we fight, as we call upon the name of the victor. I mean, just think about it practically for a second. We are weak. We are buffeted by fear, by pride. We are creatures of the flesh. We are people who love sinful patterns. We are still subject to the curse of sin and the fall in this life. What makes us think that we have any hope of on our own conquering these battles in our lives. No, we're hopeless on our own, you all. We need to call upon the name of the Lord. What makes you think you're going to fend off depression by mustering up more efforts or mustering up more courage or, just, or only relying on the tools that have been given to you? What makes you think you're ever going to break that sinful pattern simply by trying harder and slinging more stones? What makes you think you're going to drop that alcoholism just by relying on what you know? David will tell you, you need a higher power. It's not a Christian organization, but a lot of Christians are part of that organization. And David's like, my higher power is Christ, the victor. You can't fight this on your own, folks. You need to call on the name of the Lord. That's how we fight our battles, by calling on the victor, 
There's another song, Upper Room, teamed up with another band called Maverick City Music, and they wrote this song called Champion, and I love this song because it gets the David versus Goliath story right. Let's listen. You're my champion. Fall where you stand. You stand undefeated, Jesus. You're the champion. You're the victor. You're the one who's conquered. Call on the name of the victor. You're not David. Jesus is David. You are the one, Jesus, whom we call upon to fight. Look at Romans 8, 37. And this is this whole sermon in a nutshell. All we had to do was read this verse. 8:37. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Jesus is David. You're not David. So how do we fight the battles in our lives? If you take nothing away from this sermon, take away these two slides, Romans 8.37 and this slide. How do you fight? You call upon the name of the victor, Jesus.